scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 to 5. You can find that, you can stand. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 to 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude." For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Let's pray. Father, we again are just grateful for your life and your love for us, your wisdom. And we know that everything that you speak to us about God, it's meant to, to be for our good. And, and that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. So God, we just ask again for, just for the ministry of your spirit to us. And that we would hear you, Lord, and, and draw near to you in all that you want to say to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Um, before getting started, it was brought to my attention this morning that the Bernie paper um, has a notice about a little boy here in the community um, with an incurable disease. Um, he's only given six months to two years to live. His name is Parker Robertson. And there's a prayer meeting today in the, um, um, in the Bernie Park, the main plaza, at 6 p.m. this evening for him. He has been diagnosed with a neurological disease called adrenal leukodystrophy, ALD. And it has caused him to be blind, and he's lost most of his hearing. He's only six years old. Parker Robertson. So it's a neat thing that the community, this community, gathers together in, a, in prayer on occasion. Um, not many communities do that. And, um, and so there will be a public meeting at 6 o'clock um, at the Bernie uh, Main Plaza for prayer for this boy's healing. <clears throat> in this last part of 1 Timothy 3 that we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul talks about the mystery of godliness. And we spent some time looking at that, which it would seem is essentially the mystery of how God takes a corrupt human being, corrupted by sin, and produces godliness in that person. And it really comes down to just simply, Jesus does it. And the Christian life is truly about Christ. He is the, as I like to say, the source of, the means, and the goal of the Christian life. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Godliness cannot be achieved by anything that we do. Godliness is a product of what he does in us. Just as we couldn't save ourselves, we can't grow ourselves or sanctify ourselves. It has to be his activity. In the same way that we received him, we walk in him. It's God that makes a godly thing. The focus the, the foundation, the means, everything of the Christian life is Jesus himself. 
So having spoken to that, now Paul leads naturally into the subject of apostasy in chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. There are some ugly words in the English language, and I don't mean Brussels sprouts (laughs) or boiled spinach or worse yet, boiled okra. Oh, my word. (laughs) Awful words. The gallows and I had a conversation over lunch a few weeks ago about how awful boiled okra is. My mother used to torture us with that. I'm not sure why. I think it's because, you know, she wanted us to be impressed with people in other parts of the world don't have anything to eat. And I think they wouldn't eat this either. Um, It is... Um, I I can't even think of any good words to describe it. In fact, the only words that come to mind when I think of boiled okra is you have someone else's snot in your mouth. (laughs) It's that bad. Maybe I shouldn't say that on Sunday morning. (laughs) You can delete that part from the tape. But there are some other words that are truly ugly. Betrayal, adultery, treachery, apostasy. And apostasy is not a word that we use very often. But to God, it is one of the ugliest words there is. It speaks of departing from, turning away from literally to stand aloof from. And it is so absolutely contrary to the nature of God himself. God came near. He drew near. He came to us. And then we pull away from him. It is hurtful to God when those that he loves gave himself for, those that he has drawn near to and draws to himself, pull away from him for whatever reason. Apostasy. This passage will give a couple of indications of apostasy and reasons for apostasy, but I think that we need to to speak to the more foundational issues even than than what this passage in particular deals with. And the first is just the question of can Christians apostatize? It's surprising to me that that's even a question for some people because the scripture says so much to it. This is just one of many passages throughout the Bible that warn against drifting away from the Lord and his truth, turning away from God. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. So we know that doesn't mean all are going to, even though we have the an apostolic, or uh, uh, I'm not apostolic, uh, have an, an apostatizing type of spirit within us apart from the Lord. We don't have to apostatize. Some will. It doesn't have to be us. We don't have to just live in, in, in the defeat that is inevitable. It's not inevitable. 
we as Christians do not have to be those who turn away from the Lord and from the truth. Christians can, though, fall away from the faith. Luke 8.13, where it speaks of the rocky soil, it says those on the rocky soil or those, the seed that has fallen on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but they have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. 1 Timothy 1, 18-20 says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Still in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 20 and 21, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the, from the faith. Hebrews 3.12 is very clear. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Clearly, he's speaking to Christians. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Second Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Second Timothy 4, for the time will come when they will endure sound doctrine, not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And Jesus spoke to one of the churches in the book of Revelation, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Christians can deny his name. Christians can fall away from the truth. Christians can become apostate. Apostates can attend church. You can fall away from Jesus without falling away from church attendance. Apostates can preach on Sunday morning. No one is immune from apostasy. It is an ugly thing. I appreciated um, some words by Oswald Chambers on backsliding. That's what the Baptists like to call it backsliding. Chambers says, if there is one standard in the New Testament revealed by the light of God, and you do not come up to it, and do not feel inclined to come up to it, that is the beginning of backsliding, because it means your conscience does not answer to the truth. You can never be the same after the unveiling of a truth. That moment marks you for going on as, as a, more than true, a more true disciple of Jesus Christ or going back as a deserter. A disciple is a follower, a learner. One of the Old Testament prophets, speaking of Jesus, we believe, says that he has given me the heart of a disciple. 
I awake in the morning with the heart of a disciple, meaning my first thought when I awake in the morning is, Lord, teach me. A disciple is one who wants to draw near to him, hear him, sit at his feet, and do as he has said. Someone who is apostate is drawing away. He has heard from God, but he doesn't like what he's heard, and he moves away. So it's not what you know intellectually that you may apostatize from, draw back from. I'm glad that's true because I'm forgetting a lot. But it's what God has made known to your heart, where he has convicted you and illumined the truth to your inner man. Resist this internal work of God, and you grieve him, quench him, and you transgress your conscience. You are moving away from God. You are becoming apostate. You have on the point that God has spoken to you if you do not heed him. You have on this point apostatized. You'll note that Paul consistently puts together conscience and faith. And there is this connection even in apostatizing or growing in faith. Back um, at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, he spoke in verse 18 and 19 about that connection between faith and a good conscience. Verse 19, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And now in chapter 4, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience. I don't fully understand the connection between conscience and faith. But Paul is very clear. Keep a good conscience, and you're much likely to keep the faith. Transgress your conscience, and you are apostatizing. Conscience and Holy Spirit are not the same thing. Every unbeliever has a conscience, but he does not have the Holy Spirit. But God does speak to us through the the conscience. The Holy Spirit speaks to Christians through their conscience, but they are not the same. But the conscience is not our highest authority. God's Word is our highest authority. And there are times when conscience may not convict us. Conscience may not make us feel uneasy because conscience is being grieved. Conscience is being ignored. Conscience is becoming dead. And the Spirit of God can still speak. And we should listen. We are never, in in Scripture, encouraged to violate conscience. It's a serious matter to do so, probably because of the connection between conscience and and walking in faith. A person who habitually violates his conscience is a person who is not listening to the Spirit of God, even though they are not one and the same. And if you're habitually violating your conscience, you are eroding your faith, Paul says. And we are people who could end up shipwrecked in faith because we are not keeping a good conscience. Serious matters. We are not ever encouraged to violate it, but there are times, I believe, where the Spirit of God will tell us, 
Conscience is not your highest authority. I am. And you need to listen to me. If our conscience is causing other people to be hurt in their walk with faith, then our conscience is not right in its application. We need to listen to what God is saying to us through his word and even through the conscience that he's given us. Should we not, it can become seared as with a branding iron. That seems to be a permanent condition. I can't say that for sure. I believe that God is a redeeming God and there is no sin that he cannot redeem. But the imagery here of cauterizing, and that's the the literal word, is a cauterized conscience, is that it has been seared, it has been branded, and now it has become hard and insensitive. It's no longer responsive to stimuli. God isn't getting through. It's a great warning to the people of God. As I think about drifting from the Lord, which is apostatizing, drifting from the things that he has made clear to us individually as his people, Matthew 18 comes to mind. In that passage, Jesus says, if, if one sheep strays away, one lamb, the good shepherd goes after that one and brings him back. And then rejoices. He will leave the 99 sheep to go after the one that has strayed. Sometimes we take that to be God is seeking after the lost person. God does seek after the lost. But that's not what that passage is about. This is about a Christian who has strayed from the fold. And that the shepherd goes after that person. In particular in Matthew 18, we know the passage that starts out by the disciples coming and saying, how can we enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says you have to become like little children. And then the whole passage, I think, all the chapter focuses on what it means to be childlike. And the straying from the fold would seem to be straying from childlikeness. Because we can't become part of the fold without becoming like children. And when we're leaving the fold, we're no longer childlike toward the Lord. And there are three parts of being childlike. And I wonder if, we, if it's not reasonable to say, I am apostatizing. I am turning from the Lord when these characteristics of childlikeness are no, no longer part of my life. Because nobody, very few people at least, when they're in the process of apostatizing, will admit it. And say, well, I still believe the truth. I haven't rejected the deity of Christ. I haven't rejected the virgin birth of Christ. Where doctrinally am I off ground? And they may be doctrinally as sound as ever, but in their hearts, they are distant from the Lord. One of the prophets in the Old Testament said, my people are distant from me. My people do not know me. Their hearts are far from me. The first indication of childlikeness, that humility that comes before the Lord, that an expression of that humility is the childlike person, the childlike Christian is one who, who is simple and clear when it comes to moral issues. And we're living in a time when people, even within the church, are no longer clear when God is clear. Black and white 
when God is black and white. I think this was the issue in the Corinthian church when they were embracing a man in their fellowship who was in an immoral relationship with his father's wife. And they were apparently boastful about it. Then this is, this is what grace looks like, presumably, because Paul says you have become arrogant. And instead of mourning over what this man is doing, you're embracing the man when you ought to be kicking him out. It was a black and white issue that they had made gray. Well, God forgives everybody. Who are we to cast the first stone? But they're forgetting that the starting point is not God's grace, but God's holiness, God's character, and that God himself, even in his grace, cannot countenance sin. It breaks fellowship with God. So how can I reflect the nature of God who cannot fellowship with sin and myself be fellowshipping with somebody who's living in unrepentant sin? It's a lie against the very character of God. That relationship needs to change. It doesn't necessarily need to be severed because God doesn't sever his relationship with us. But the relationship needs to change fundamentally. Because God's relationship with us changes fundamentally when we live in unrepentant sin. The childlike person says, this is wrong. Speaks clearly. Deals drastically with it in his own life. And we begin to apostatize when we can't speak clearly to what God speaks clearly to. We use language to to move around the truth rather than to express truth. I hate it when I come across that. And we can all be guilty of it. I read different theologians or different things people are writing, asking, trying to answer a clear, simple question, and they can't give a clear, simple response. They're using language to get around the truth rather than to state the truth. It is a spirit of apostasy because the childlike person before God is as black and white as God is. Childlikeness manifests itself in that when the person is wrong and brothers and sisters come to that person in the name of Jesus and speak to it, they change, they repent. They turn from it. They don't stubbornly dig in and say, well, this, you know, that's not it. I have a friend that was preaching in a pretty large context and a very large Christian audience. And he was at a point in his life where he was just really upset with, with how individualized Christianity has become in the Western world. It's all about me. And so as he was just stirred about that in spirit, and he started looking at God's word, he became just, just almost um, myopic in his focus on all the scriptures that speak to the community of Christian experience, and he couldn't find anything that spoke to the individual Christian experience, even when it came to the love of God. For God so loved the world, it doesn't say for God so loved you individually. And so that kind of thing just really was stirring his heart. And he was preaching in this large context before hundreds of Christians about we are too focused on the individual when God is focused on the world. 
Well, it'll preach. And he's a preacher. And he was never invited back. Because he made it sound as though God doesn't say anything in Scripture about loving the individual. And I wasn't trying to refute him at all, but we were in a conversation just just immediately following him telling me about the sermon that he'd given and, and, and how powerful it was. And, 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 and then we changed subjects and Galatians 2.20 came to mind in the course of the next subject. And I quoted that. And at the end of the verse, remember what it says? Who loved me and gave himself for me. And I could see, as soon, and I wasn't trying to convict him. I, didn't, I wasn't even connecting the two conversations. But as soon as that verse was quoted, I could see conviction. My word, I was wrong. Scripture does speak to the individual being loved by God. And in childlikeness, he never preached that again. That's how it should be. When confronted with the truth of God's word, the truth of people speaking to us in the name of Jesus concerning an offense or sin in our own life. One time's enough. As I said before, you know, how many times does God have to tell us something before we listen to Him? How many people have to come to us saying the same thing before we believe it? An apostate heart won't listen when confronted. An apostate heart third thing from this passage in Matthew is unwilling to forgive others. Just won't forgive. We've been forgiven. And when our hearts are the Lord's hearts, we have the heart and mind of Christ. We forgive as we've been forgiven. And when our hearts are not willing to forgive, we are standing aside from God. We are not allowing him to make himself known through us. Going back to 1 Timothy 4, again, just so many different themes that are woven into this one paragraph. He says, the Spirit explicitly says this, not in any one place. He doesn't give a quote. This is throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, as I read many of those verses, The Spirit says people, Christian people, can and will fall away from the faith. In doing so, they will pay attention to deceitful spirits, and those are demons, because angels never deceive, and doctrines of demons. So they're going to pay attention to demons and what they're teaching. Okay, now what is that? What kind of things do demons teach? And then, I'll answer that in a minute, come back to that a little bit. But then he says, by by means of the hypocrisy of liars. So the demons will teach things through hypocritical liars. We all know hypocrisy. It's to say one thing and do something else. This is what I believe, and then we do something else. And I've said before, it occurs to me that Christians have the greatest chance of being hypocritical of any people on the earth. And that's because we believe more than most people on the world, in the earth do. If you're an atheist, if you believe nothing, or 
you belong to another church that believes everything, and really in that believes nothing, then how can you ever be accused of hypocrisy? Because there's really nothing that you believe. But if there's a lot to your faith, then there's a lot of opportunity for hypocrisy. So it is true. No Christian is without hypocrisy. We have, when we go back to Pennsylvania, Amish country up there, and there's quite a bit of hypocrisy in the Amish religion. And everybody likes to talk about it, make fun of it and stuff. But we don't really look inward very much. And there is, not, there is hypocrisy in every religion. Christians are not exempt from this. But we need to turn away from it as we see it. And again, walk in the truth with the one who is the truth, that what we profess matches our behavior. We won't be hypocritical. Liars, those that say one thing, do another, hypocrisy, and act as though that their lives are true to what they're preaching when they are not. Well, what is it that demons teach? In the context of this passage, demons will teach you, verse 3, to forbid marriage and abstain from certain foods. As though you can be more spiritual by not doing certain things. So, not equals positive. Negative equals positive. That is not the Christian life. I remember Lewis Perry Chafer in his book, True Spiritual, He That Is Spiritual, wrote and he said, the Christian life is not a life of suppression. It is a life of expression. And I always remember that come now springtime, the time that we're in, because these live oak trees are losing their dead leaves at this time of year. And we're out raking our yards. And and the reason that's happened is because all winter long, those dead leaves hanging on that tree still were hanging there, clinging there. And the hailstorms, the wind, the rain, ice, none of it causes those dead leaves to fall off. The reason the dead leaves fall off is because in the springtime, there's new life coursing through those branches, and the new life is pushing the leaves off. That's how it is why Christians, we don't just stand up every Sunday and preach against sin. We preach Christ. And as we abide in Christ, trust in Christ, the sin will fall away. You don't conquer sin by focusing on sin. Nobody's ever done that. You don't get over sin by trying to, to, to deny yourself something that is, that is tempting you. It's a heart matter, and only Jesus can deal with the heart. And so it's a life of expression. He is expressing himself through us. It is not a life of suppression. And when people are saying, there is something you need to stop doing. Don't get married. It's better not to get married. You know, don't eat these foods. You'll be holier You'll be more spiritual if you not do these things. It's a lie. It is a demonic doctrine. We are holy because of the Holy One who lives within us. We are godly because of Christ who is God who indwells the believer. We're not godly because of our activity, but rather we yield to His activity. It is not a life of negatives. It's a life of Jesus, the positive. We come to him. 
The doctrine of demons would separate the, the, the spiritual world from the natural world and say that you can, you can live in one, but you can't live in both. That either you're a natural man living in a physical world with your mind focused on the physical, or you're a spiritual man living in the heavenlies, but you can't embrace both. That is a doctrine of demons. Where God says, He has come in order to make the natural spiritual. Whether everything we do in this life, whatever our, our hands find to do, we can do it to the glory of God because it's God working through us as we yield to Him. And so the natural is transformed into the spiritual. It's not disassociating ourselves one for the sake of the other. I can have nothing to do with the world so that I can be spiritual. As Paul says, God didn't come to take us out of this world, but to keep us while we're in it. To live in this world without becoming worldly. To go about our jobs, to raise our families, to love our spouses. The natural things of this world under the power of the Spirit of God. That is godliness. It's not separating the two so that they have no interrelation with each other. Christ plus something teaching is demonic. There is nothing outside of Jesus. And if we have him, we have everything we'll ever need. And we all know You can go down to the Christian bookstore down at the rim and look at all the titles. And so many of them are Christ plus. There is something else we need. So many churches saying, you've got a need, we can come and fix that need. Right? Really? I can't fix my own needs. How can I fix anybody else's? Christ is the only answer. And we always give some kind of answer to people other than Jesus Christ. And that Christ plus teaching is demonic. One evidence that a person, a preacher, a teacher, any of us as individuals is moving away from the truth is when there's an an area of truth that we refuse to speak on. When we refuse to address, when we see it in someone's life, within our family, within those that we're accountable for. And we say nothing. I always remember the story of a professor in seminary who, he went out to dinner, he and his wife, with another couple. This professor lived in Highland Park, Dallas, a nice area of Dallas. And very nice home. And they went out to dinner with this other couple and they left um, all the children unattended in the house. But they were old enough to be on their own. So the professor's children... And, and, the, and the other couple's children. And when they got home, the other couple's children had taken permanent black marker and marked all over the white walls in that Highland Park home. And when the parents saw what their children had said, they just laughed it off. <laughs> kids will be kids. Made no apologies, made no efforts to do anything about it, Nothing. And I remember the professor saying this in seminary, and I'm going, my lanta. How in the world could you do that and not discipline your children? And then the professor, because it kind of got the conversation rolling, and so we were talking, and he says, you know, my observation is that a lot of the people that I know in the area where I live, pretty wealthy people, have kids that are just out of control. Drugs, immorality, the whole thing. 
And, and he says, I've come to wonder because I don't see the parents doing anything. I don't see them standing against it. It looks as though they almost are encouraging it, even though they would tell you that they're grieved over it. And he says, but what I've come to think is that these parents, because of the sin in their own lives, typically alcoholism, they can't live with innocent life under their own roof. And the parents are the ones who are defiling their children and suddenly encouraging them to sin their own destroy their own lives because they can't face the light of their innocence in their own home. Pretty strong statement. When we begin to apostatize, we start getting silent about how the sin in our lives that we know is there and maybe other people don't when we see it in somebody else's life. And we know we can't say anything. And so we don't. We have to wonder. It is a valid question to ask. When in a church or a ministry or even in the secular world, when there is leadership that refuses to say something about a particular wrong, over and over, year after year, we all wonder, is the same wrong true in their own lives? That they refuse to take a stand against this? It's a valid question. Because when we begin to get apostate, we become increasingly silent on these things. Sometimes, though, in hypocrisy, we'll preach all the harder about them. We heard about the pastor up in Colorado Springs a few years ago that would preach hard and heavy against homosexuality, only to be guilty of it himself. I think that an evidence of apostasy, of demonic doctrine, is when we emphasize obedience, but not faith. Or we emphasize faith and grace, but not obedience. Because it's both. You can't separate faith and obedience. And many times people emphasize one or the other. It is a demonic doctrine. When we emphasize the internal, but not the external. Or we emphasize the external, but not the internal. Deceiving spirits will prompt us to depart from the historic faith. That's too broad. Again, I've been thinking about this a lot. Deceiving spirits, yes, will prompt us to depart from the historic faith. And we see that all the time. Mainline church denominations, that there is not a semblance of faith left to them. We know that to be true. And that's why the Bible church movement got started, really, in this this country. Because people were sick and tired of the liberalism where churches had abandoned the historic faith. How do you get to that place? It's often preceded by moral compromise. Either your theology determines your ethics or your ethics will determine your theology. And usually it's our ethics determining our theology. And when people start moving into liberal theology, it is often because of their ethics have long since departed from the truth of God's word. 
But it's still too broad to talk about abandoning the historic faith. We may not even know what the historic faith is. Right? But you know what the Spirit of God has told you. Think back. I mean, this is, I look at my grandmother, one of my two. We all had two. She professed to be a Christian. She was one of the most liberal people I have ever met in my life. There were no true, distinctive Christian values to her life. It wasn't easy. And one time, she's at the breakfast table here in Bernie. The two of us were sitting there, and she's just out of the blue. She said, Charlie, why is it in this family that I don't feel like I'm a Christian? Whoa. And so we had a heart-to-heart. And I told her, I said, we're, there is gently, respectfully, as you have to do when talking to a grandparent. We love you. We are very, we very much love you. Absolutely committed to you. You know that. But there is, when we look at your values of what's important to you, how you tell us to marry money, how, you know, and just go down the list of the things that, that, that were very important to her. We don't see Christ. We don't see his values reflected in you. So, yes, we've wondered whether you know Jesus when we don't see the values of Christ governing your heart. I hope we're wrong. Maybe she was just apostate. But even in that condition, I was encouraged. God, I felt like God led me one Christmas to give her a copy of Edith Schaefer's book, The Tapestry, that had just come out. And she read that, and, she, and I don't know whether she got saved, but the Lord truly spoke to her and encouraged her. And it was neat to see. I may not know what the historic faith is, but I know what the Spirit of God has told me. And if we will just, especially those of us that have gray hair in this room, will just think back to what we once knew to be true on ethical matters. Because honestly, one of the reasons this world is in as bad a shape it's in today, it's not because of the younger generation. It's because the older generation has departed from the truth. What they know is true. And they're no longer living in the truth, walking in the truth. And there's silence when they see others transgressing because they transgressed a long time ago. In their own hearts, maybe you can't see it in their lives, but their own hearts, they gave up. They threw in the towel. They are no longer believing and walking in the truth that was once revealed to them. They apostatized a long time ago. And now they're silent when they see it all around them. That doesn't explain it all, but I think it's part of it. Deceiving spirits prompt me to depart from what I know God has told me. Back to this passage and the emphasis here on marriage and food. 
silly, isn't it? That anybody could ever say marriage is wrong. God does not want you to get married, that you can be more spiritual if you don't get married. This is why we need to be careful about what we say and how we handle Scripture. Paul says it is preferable to be single because you can have undistracted devotion to the Lord, right? But he doesn't say that you can be more spiritual if you are single. So this is where we can take God's clear teaching and say more than what God is saying. God says, if you are single, you will have fewer distractions in your walk with the Lord. Amen. He is not saying, if you are single, you can be godlier, more spiritual than a married person. That is going beyond God's word. And that's what these people were doing. Taking Paul's words, presumably, and saying, even Paul said, it is Good, better not to be married. Therefore, don't get married. They've gone beyond God's word. You can be more spiritual if you don't get married. It's a lie. Spirituality is not by what we do, but it's what the Spirit does. Something is spiritual because the Spirit did it, not because we did it. And then about food. Some foods, better not to eat. I already mentioned some this morning, especially boiled okra. I can tell you it would be honestly very difficult for me if I came to your house and you said, Charlie, the main course today is boiled okra. It would be very difficult for me to take that with gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord. I would say thank you, but it would not taste any better. Okay, just anyway. So here he says, Foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, even in the physical world. God does not make this dividing wall between physical and spiritual. The spiritual is to impact the physical. And everything that God has made is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. This is why Paul would tell the Jews who had issues about food, if you're going to go to a Gentile's house and they're serving food and you wonder if it's kosher or not, don't even ask. For conscience sake, just eat it and don't ask. Because if you don't know, then you don't know. If you don't know, how can it violate your conscience? So don't even ask. Just eat it. I think we should do the same when we're invited into people's homes. Just eat what's set before us and trust God with the consequences. Receive it with gratitude and thankfulness because God has provided. But it's not what I wanted. It's not what I like. I have a friend that every time somebody serves something he doesn't like, he says he's allergic to it. I'm sorry, I can't eat that. I have an allergy. Man, I need to remember that. I'm allergic to boiled okra. It is all to be received with gratitude, and it is sanctified. That food that you do not want, that you do not prefer, that you do not like, it is sanctified by means of the Word of God in prayer. What is God's Word says? It's good. I created it. You have no spiritual grounds for rejecting it. And prayer, that's why we pray. 
When we pray so much habitually as Christians, we don't even know why we pray when it comes to praying over our food. Why do we pray? Because there's a verse in the Bible that says pray for your food. Really? This is as close as it comes. Give thanks. That's why we pray. Because we're saying, God, it came from you. may not be what I would have chosen, but it came from you. Thank you for what you've provided. And it's a prayer of gratitude. And God says in that, he's pleased and he will use it for good in our lives. Vegetables and fruit do not make you stronger and fatter. Right? Hope you believe that. When Daniel and his friends went before the, the guy that was in charge of them and said, test us for three weeks, I think it was, or ten days, whatever it was, with fruit and vegetables and see if we're not healthier and fatter, it was not because a vegetarian diet makes you healthier that they were fatter. I've never seen a fat vegetarian. Those boys got fat eating vegetables. And it looked good because apparently they were bone skinny before they started eating vegetables. And so they got fatter off of vegetables and it was because God took that food and used it for the nourishment of their bodies. Because they took their food as from God. And they said, God, we know there are foods that we cannot eat because your word says so. But the word of God says to us, there are no foods that you cannot eat. So eat to the glory of God. Not getting into a big thing here about diet. I'm just saying, food does not make you holy or spiritual. And if somebody sets something before you, thank God for it and eat it to the glory of God. It's been a long sermon, sorry, about apostatizing. And I just want to end it on the positive note. It doesn't say all are going to apostatize. We do not have to think. We have to end up a train wreck. Keep a good conscience before God. And by the way, it is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses our consciences. We can't even keep a good conscience in our own. But the blood of Jesus cleanses our consciences. So we come to him. Come to him. That is the spirit of the disciple. The spirit of apostasy is we're pulling away from him. Keep coming to him, and we will not apostatize. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for your faithfulness in our lives. Your word tells us that you will never depart from us, never deny us, never withdraw from us, that there is no apostate spirit within you. We thank you that your word tells us that Jesus will persevere with us, for us. It doesn't say that we will necessarily persevere. We could apostatize. But God, I thank you that this warning, admonishment, encouragement is not anything that we can just fix or address on our own. But Jesus is the one who perseveres on our behalf. So I thank you for the work that you've begun and I thank you, God, that you will finish the work. But, Lord, as we walk through this life, our eyes are on you. I pray that we would be as children throughout our lives and not drift away, God, from that humble, childlike demeanor before you. 
and then in all that you say to us, God, in the history of our faith walk with you, that we would hear you, heed you in humility. In Jesus' name, amen.